Everyone's so busy keeping up. Forget about the Joneses, we all on our telephones. With the texts and the tweets and the beats. What he said, she said, can't even follow the three. Down the hole, we all go. Me, I like keeping up too. With my corona and my attitude. That's La Vida Masfina. Relax responsibly. Corona Extra Beer. Imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. a fascinating year for the Twins. Uh, start off low expectations, not all that well, and then they get hot and they become one of the best stories in baseball. And really over the last month, maybe two months, they just haven't been all that great. It, it feels like a long lull. The question is, which team is the real Twins team? Is this a good team that's dealing with injuries? Is this a team that maybe we overrated because they played well? Let's ask Roy Smalley and Lavelle Neal here on Chin Music. This is our baseball show at TalkNorth.com. Uh, Roy, you you were out last week. Let's ask you to start. Uh, What's your assessment of the Twins at this point? Is this a good team that's going to find itself, or are you a little worried at this point? Yeah, I'm a little concerned. I'm giving uh, them a little bit of slack because the injuries uh, have been significant. I mean, it's not the team that um, was uh, playing well for the first two months of the season, and um, it's – you know when when Buxton is a is a part time player and and um, you know you're playing um, you know, Celestino in the outfield and you know and not to not to denigrate anybody but um, no Kirloff no Larnick um, Kepler hurt and and not as effective uh, as um, as earlier um, there. I think that the injuries have been uh, have been a real issue. Uh, having said that, um, the the fact that you know it, it's concerning from an offensive standpoint that you know Correa is not swinging it as well. Uh, Polanco really hasn't and, until you know last night. I mean, um, he's he's not been the Polanco that we've seen uh, in the past, and. Um, you know, Buxton is hit and miss. Uh, Kepler hit and miss. So, I mean, I think that there's there's some reason for slight concern about getting getting the the major run producers going uh, in the, in this lineup. And, um, and then, of course, the the pitching is going to is probably the the biggest concern, uh, just because. I mean, they've helped themselves so much in the eighth and ninth inning that now, and potentially in the seventh. Um, but you you can lose the game in the fifth or sixth um, or seventh before you get to your to your studs in the eighth and ninth. And you know they ran into uh, you know probably the best club in the game you know out in L.A. and you know, got, uh, and the pitching got exposed a little bit. I, I'm not going to write off the pitching because that Dodger team is, is loaded and, and they can really hit and uh, everything that we know. But I think it does, it, nothing has been, um, and n- nothing has shown that the potential weakness uh, on the mound, uh, the bridge to 
you know, from the fourth inning, I mean, starters, starters looking pretty good for four innings and, you know, if it's a fifth and sixth inning, how are they going to, how are they going to do, how are we going to bridge to the eighth and ninth? And the starters aren't going long enough for the, the bridge guys to not be a little exposed, you know? So yeah, I have, I have a little bit of concern about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting to get a little irritated to be honest with you. Uh, I think they're, I think the offense is starting to under, underachieve a little bit. Um, I, I understand the bucks and rules and the importance of giving them days off, but I'm sitting there thinking, will he be better off if you sit him down for a week or two? And then will he be more available, available in more games down the stretch? Does that need to happen? Um, I've seen Polanco finish season strong before. So I, I'm hoping that, uh, I think he's hitting just 237 now. I'm hoping that uh, he kind of turns it around and finishes strongly. But um, Carlos Correa is uh, being paid $35 million to, uh, this year, and he is being paid like an elite player, and he has not been an elite player. His uh, OPS is under 800. I think he has just 13 home runs. I think he's batting just 264 or something like that, and that's that's not acceptable to me for someone who's um, you know drawing an elite salary and is looking to – opt out and make, you know, that much or more down the road. I think, uh, I think Correa, you know, could be in a, in for a rude awakening. If he goes into the off season with these numbers, expecting that someone's going to cough up, cough up 35 to 40 million a year for him because the production's not there. Um, so when you, when you add, when you put those three guys together, you know, plus, you know, Kepler was, this has been going on since, uh, his magical year of 2019. Um, this offense is kind of underachieving. And it's time for these guys to step up. Um, Roy is correct in that the the Twins are being sabotaged by the soft underbelly uh, of their pitching staff, which is you know the middle relief, the middle inning guys, because the starters aren't either aren't being allowed to go deeper or can't go deeper in the games, and this bullpen has to come in and cover more outs, and um, they're getting caught. Um, and it's. It's not bad luck. It's just bad pitching. Uh, I mean, Griffin Jacks yesterday pitched middle-middle to a 164-hitting Joey Gallo <laughs> and, and it ended up being a three-run pitch hit home run, which, you know, is back-breaking. You know, uh, he's not a reliever, but Joe Ryan. Joe Ryan needs to go deeper in the games, but you saw him on Tuesday. Pitches over the middle-middle of the plate. You know, I know he's got some good movement and some rise in his fastball, but you know, any pitch that's going to be laid out on a platter like that is going to get going to get devoured. You know, so I think this team is underachieving right now, and some guys need to get it going, and um, p- particularly in offense, um, this should be a better offensive team, I think. And it's I don't I don't see it I don't see it on the field here. And the remarkable thing is that I, I, you look at you look at these you look at these rosters, they should be better than Cleveland, but Cleveland's hanging around and now is in first place uh, in the division. Um, and um, some guys need to get it in gear here um, as they have to fight fight through a very tough August schedule. Um, they're facing some good teams this month. You know, they, they've got uh, – um, they, they did Toronto, and they've played the Dodgers, and they got a couple other juicy teams this month as well that they have to contend once they get to September. They've got a series of games with the White Sox and Indians, which will – I'm sorry, the Guardians, which will determine their season. But, um, you know um, – they, they have, they have got to raise their level. I'm just, I'm just not pleased with what I'm seeing. 
Corona is the official import beer sponsor of the Minnesota Twins and the presenting sponsor of the Chin Music Show here at TalkNorth.com. This is TalkNorth.com. Check out all of our sports content. We have the best sports lineup in in the state. We have variety content coming in now. We have outdoor content. Our producer is Brandon Morton. Our salesperson is Karen Cleary. You can reach her at K-C-L-E-A-R-Y at TalkNorth.com if you'd like to advertise with this show or the network. We do recommend if you're listening – Subscribe to your favorite podcast app. It is free. It is easy. You can also follow us on Twitter at TalkNorthPod and see the shows as they are released. Uh, you just brought up uh, kind of the catch-22 of the twin situation. Mathematically, their pitchers do not survive going through the lineup the third time. They just don't. But if you pull them in the fifth inning – or at the end of the fifth inning, then you're blowing out your bullpen and they don't have enough good relievers. I don't know. you know. So I completely understand the numbers say you cannot have these guys go through the lineup the third time. But the alternative is you're putting guys who aren't very good in there and trusting them to, as Roy said, you can lose the, you can lose the game in the fifth or sixth inning. Let, let's focus here on Pagan. Here's a guy who throws 97 with movement, uh, nasty breaking pitch, has had success in the big leagues, and yet he looks like he has no confidence and no command. What do you do with him, Roy? Boy, that's a great question. I I, I really don't know uh, because you, you look at the stuff and you say, why, you know, why isn't this working? And um, for the most part, it's um, it's just been location for the uh, you know all three of the pitches that he has. He's got a he's got a good fastball. He's got a, a slider or or cutter that uh, whatever you want to call it, depending on the speed he throws it, uh, has uh, can have real, real good uh, uh, movement, trajectory, and depth. Um, and he's got a nice split finger uh, changeup. And <clears throat> with those three, it, invariably, it's um, it, it's ball four or throw something down the middle that gets tattooed. And and they're I thought I have thought over uh, over time here in the second half of the season there have been some some mistakes in terms of pitch selection and and how they tried to tried to pitch hitters uh, but that's not the, that's not the whole story the, the the main part of the story has been uh, whether it's lack of confidence or or whatever it's it's the the inability to stay out of the middle of the plate with with something in a, in a, in a big situation. So, I mean, it's the reason why he uh, is no longer in the eighth and, and ninth. Uh, um, I think they believed that, you know, bridging, you know, pitching the sixth inning would be the, you know, the right, the right role, but it, it hasn't, it hasn't worked. Uh, and it's mainly because it's, it's just the, it's just the lack of quality of the strikes, not, not the fact that, not the fact that he doesn't have decent stuff or can't throw strikes. It's just he throws a lot, a lot right in the middle. He'll get behind, um, and then he'll throw a lot of a lot of pitches right in the middle. I I, I can't see the Twins giving up on Pagan. I mean, that arm is too live. The stuff is too good. Um, he, he throws too hard. He should be an asset on this staff, and it's just not clicking. And hopefully maybe if he gets into the offseason and, and starts working on some adjustments, He'll come back in 2023 and, and, and be an asset to um, that group. But um, 
it is troubling to see a guy that talented come in and struggle. And it, it, it's been uncanny that he'll come into games and the the problems are just immediate. You know, it, you know he's been entrusted with so many leads and those leads have evaporated so quickly. That's demoralizing you know, to a clubhouse and it's infuriating to a fan base. Uh, so, um, and, and Roy is correct in that it just seems like he's he's centering too many pitches and they're just getting clobbered. And his stuff is is um, is too good for that to happen. Um, you know, I'm sitting there looking at his numbers with the Twins this year, and it looks like he's he's um, he's throwing that split finger pitch. Uh, he's pretty much introduced it this year. <clears throat> he's thrown it 26 percent of the time. He's at at the expense of his fastball. He's not throwing his fastball as much as he has in recent years. Um, his usage for his fastball is under 50 percent. So. Um, he's tried to come up with third pitch to get those hitters off his other, his slider and his fastball, and it hasn't worked. So I don't know if he needs to go back to being a fastball slider guy um, or if he just needs to keep working on that split finger pitch to give him a, a chance here. But there's some sort of adjustment out there that he needs to to discover because um, he is too talented to to pitch the way he's pitching. And it's hard for the Twins to give up on the guy because he may be the only thing they get back that's that's functional in that uh, Taylor Rogers trade um, uh, because um, Chris Paddock, you know, has, has had his second Tommy John surgery and pitchers who have come back from two Tommy John surgeries do not fare well for the most part. So, and I'm not saying that you, you hold on to guys because you don't want to be embarrassed because I would trade in a workout, but uh, Pagan's worth working with just because of the tools he brings. And for some reason, those tools are, are, are not clicking and you got to figure out a way to make them click. I would just say, you know, one other thing um, th- that my, my personal opinion is, I mean, I know um, that the twins pitching uh, coach uh, coaching staff and probably throughout the organization, um, but especially when Wes Johnson was here, I think he kind of established that they, they just want they want guys that can spin the ball. They talk about spinning it all the time. And what that means is it, basically that means slider. Um, you know, curveball if you got it. Uh, but it basically means sliders. And uh, my personal feeling about Pagan is that he needs to pitch up in the zone. He throws 97, 98, pitch to the high end of the zone with his fastball and, throw the, and, and get that split finger. Uh, working and, and concentrate on those two. You can throw a slider and only throw your slider when you're comfortable that it's going to be on the outside corner or or off. I mean, it's a, a surprise strikeout pitch. Um, I, I just, I, I don't, I, I think that he would be best served uh, understanding that he throws 97 or 98 and that the combination of fastball split finger is uh, for a lever is uh, really a good one if you can make that work. Uh, fastball slider uh, for a reliever, um, not so much. And especially if you get concerned about throwing your fastball. And once you once once hitters sense that you have some concern about throwing the fastball, then there's almost no place you can throw a slider that's going to get them out. So hmm. uh, I. I I, I'd, I'd like to see him really focus on fastball split. Interesting. Uh, and the, 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 
you know, I, I didn't, I don't think I thought about it at that level of specificity, but I did, did have been noticing when you watch Pagan, you're like, my God, he throws 97. Uh, you know, if he puts that in the right place, that should be his best pitch. And man, the slider, when he hangs, it gets hit a long, long way. Yeah, Roy, he's throwing, he threw his fastball at least 60% at a time in each of his previous years in the majors. And right now for the twins, it's 48%, 48.7%. Yeah. I didn't know those. I didn't know those uh, stats uh, Lavelle, but I mean, it's just, it's just the eye test. It's like, uh, um, you, you can just, you you can tell that he just doesn't have confidence in the fastball. And and one of the reasons has been, you know, I, I guys, you know, guys get on the fastball from the first pitch and he throws it down the middle and they, and they, they hit it, you know, first pitch, first pitch fastball that they, that they see. And so, I mean, I, I, I get it. Um, but just because that's a possibility, it, um, it doesn't, doesn't mean that everything doesn't set up off a 97 or 98 mile an hour fastball like, because it does. I mean, you, if you throw it, if you throw it at that velocity, I just, I believe that's gotta be your primary pitch. And then throw other stuff off of that, rather rather than the other way around. We will get back to some twins issues, but I did want to take this opportunity. Roy grew up in Southern California. Uh, we just watched a couple of games, Twins at Dodger Stadium. I, I just love it. Uh, of course, I used to travel with the team and travel uh, doing other baseball stories. I used to love it anytime I used to go to one of the great stadiums. Uh, so, Roy, tell me about Dodger Stadium. You know, where it ranks for you among baseball stadiums, what your experiences there were, and if you have any Vin Scully stories, feel free to share those too. <laughs> well, um, when they opened Chavez Ravine and we started uh, going out there, Gene Mock was the manager of the Phillies and, and um, would bring his you know clubs out there. And we, my family would, uh, Gene would get us great seats right uh, right behind the um the visiting on deck circle and uh we'd we'd sit and watch ball games um and we watch uh, uh jim bunning and chris short uh battle with sandy colfax and don drysdale and it was it was it was phenomenal and, and but but i tell you the first time i ever walked into the stadium as a kid i would have been you know around nine or ten it and the whole thing was like a dream. It's a beautiful, beautiful setting there in the hills, just east of Los Angeles. And um, you can sit, you can tell on on television what a what a beautiful setting it is. And and they've done a great job. They were, I think they were, they were really, uh, they really had a lot of foresight uh, when they built it. Uh, they, it, it's an old style kind of ballpark that was built in a new kind of style for the time because the concourses are really wide and open and, and clean. And, and, uh, they're just a, a lot of things that, uh, that they did that allowed them to just, you know, continue to make renovations and, and improve things here and there, but you don't have to blow it up and start all over again. And that, you know, it's a real testimony, I think, to, uh, testament to, um, just the whole design of the place, but, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful stadium. And it's, it's one of those stadiums, even though it's different than, uh, Camden Yards, for example, or Fenway, you know, in the old style where you say, 
that's really that's big league baseball. Dodger Stadium was big league baseball too to me. To me, it was and and still is as I've seen you know most of the other many of the other stadiums. Um, Dodger Stadium still holds its own. It's one of the most one of the most beautiful places. Laval, you've been there too, I assume. Yes, two thousand five. The Twins' uh, first ever interleague appearance in uh, was that he shop Troy. Yes, I'm getting to that. I'm getting you to and that. I were sitting next to each other while we were <laughs> yes. listening to the he shop Troy chants. <laughs> oh man! Um, first of all, the thing that strikes me is that I didn't know how to I didn't know how the stadium was configured because I've never been there. And so, uh, media, you go up, you went up the hill, you parked at the top of the hill, so you enter Dodger Stadium from the top level, and so you go through the small corridor after you get through security. And then you walk out from the other side of uh, the other side of this corridor and kapow, you know, this gorgeous view is awaiting you. As soon as you walk out from the corridor, because you're right behind home plate and you got the panoramic panoramic view almost of of Dodger Stadium. You're like, oh, wow, this is a really good look here, you know. Um, and then uh, before game one, um, I was determined to meet Vin. And so I went to go look for Vin Scully. And uh, I got on the floor and I found his booth and I said, I saw Vin. I said, Mr. Scully, hello, my name is Lavelle Neal for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. I'm sorry, I just had to introduce myself to you. And he goes, Lavelle, it is a pleasure to meet you. You know, so now we're talking for a couple of minutes and he goes, Lavelle, I'd love to sit here and chat with you some more, but I got to get down to the Minnesota Twins clubhouse. I have to meet one of my all time favorite players, Juan Castro. And I'm like, yeah, Juan loved, Castro? He loved Juan <laughs> Castro. So this week on my show, Blocked and Muted, uh, I had Dick Bremer on as my guest and he told, he said that, uh, that Vin Scully, like he, he saw Vin Scully one time at Dodger Stadium and Vin was holding an autographed bat from Juan Castro. He loved Juan Castro. Yeah, and so uh, two quick things um, about that series. First game of the series, Torrey Hunter makes this fantastic catch to end the inning. So we're sitting in the press box, and I'm watching this large black man walk down the concourse uh, in the first, at the lower level, go down the stairs to the edge of the Twins' dugout. And he's demanding, demanding to speak to Torrey Hunter. And uh, the security guard eventually gives in and, and tells Torrey, there's a guy who wants to talk to you. And Tori goes over to, to talk to the guy. It was Michael Clark Duncan. Nah. <laughs> Michael Clark Duncan saw, wanted to congratulate Tori on making such a fantastic catch. And then um, it was the game, the third game of the series, the final game, the uh, rubber game. Um, Brad Rackey's on the mound. Rackey went six and two-thirds innings. He gave up four, um, four runs, all solo homers, three of the homers by Hesop Choi. Okay, so now... At the time, whenever he sub Choi did something, the crowd starts chanting, he sub Choi, he sub Choi. So now after the second home run, it's getting louder. Then after the third home run, which I believe is in the fifth or sixth inning, it got even louder, you know. And so <laughs> um, it's the sixth inning. Rocky, I think Rocky almost got through the seventh. It's, it's the sixth inning. I think the bases got loaded, and Choi was either on deck or in the hole. And Ron Gardner was, he says, I'll be damned if I'm going to let Rocky Racky give up a fourth home run to Hesop Choi. So, so Gardy goes out to the mound to remove Racky. Racky sees Gardy come out, and Racky goes, what the bleep are you doing out here? <laughs> Just totally deadpan Racky humor. Uh, but he knew he was coming out of the game. Uh, so uh, that was uh, 
those are my favorite memories. That it was it was a heck of a series just for some of the shenanigans that went on around the games. <laughs> oh man, Guardy was so much fun. Oh, uh, if you so remember, I, I'm gonna tell you know. I'm a, go ahead, get it right. Get well, just getting back to Vince Scully a little bit. I mean, I think I, so many things have been, uh, you know, written and said about him, all of them, all of them true about how he loved players. He loved all players and he loved anybody associated with the, with the game. He just, he just loved the game and, and was one of the true gentlemen and nicest fellows uh, ever. Um, it, for me, uh, yeah, I grew up listening to Vince Scully on the radio. Uh, it was, it was mostly uh, radio in the early in the early days of the, in the '60s when the Dodgers were there and Colfax and Drysdale were you know doing what they were doing and and I you know I grew up in baseball I would say it's the for me it's the triumvirate it was my dad and my and my uncle and Vin Scully I mean and that was baseball to me you know, to me and I still. Here I, I would sit. Uh, my my parents got me a radio clock radio with one of those sleeper things on it, where you could set it the time to you know for it to go off uh, after a certain number of minutes. And I would I would go to bed and I'd set it on sixty minutes, and I would I would listen to the you know I, I didn't always make it an hour, but I would I would listen to, listen to Ben Scully till I till I fell asleep, and I still I still hear him painting a picture of, I mean, I still hear and see, you you could see right through your radio, he would paint this picture uh, of, um, uh, of what was going on on the field, what the field looked like, what the, what the stadium looked like, what, what was going on everywhere. And I, 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 there are things that stick in my mind, you know, they like his, um, his, his home run call uh, was, it was, Always something like swung on it, belted to left. Back goes mm-hmm. Brock, away back to the wall. It's gone. And I mean, I I I must have heard that two thousand times. And and him talking about Drysdale uh, on the you know on the rubber leaning and get the signs. Roseboro wigwagging the signs out to him. I mean, who says? the catcher's wigwagging signs. I mean, but you can see it. And, and he just made the whole, the whole experience of listening on the radio almost feel like you were watching it on television. It was, he was uh, amazing. And I, I have asked you to indulge me one other time. This is something that I'll never forget as long as I've lived being a a seven year old kid in 1959. And this was not in, in Dodger stadium. It was in the old Coliseum, but, the uh, Dodgers had to had to win the last game of the year against the Braves to get to the World Series. The White Sox in '59 had already uh, had, you know, were, were the American League um, team going to be in the World Series. And you remember these names? Uh, Joe Adcock was uh, playing first base for the Braves. Felix uh, Mantilla was playing shortstop, and. Uh, the score is tied. It's the last inning. Whatever, whatever's going to turn out to be the the last inning, and I'll I'll never forget this this call. Big bouncer over the mound behind second base. Mantia up with it. Throws low in the dirt. The ball gets by Adcock. Hodges scores, and we go to Chicago. Wow! Wow! <laughs> I'll never forget that as long as I live. It was 
it was so real time. I mean, there was no delay. He and there was no stuttering. He just he just described in real time. And then as he did from that moment on, he had the ability to say things like Hodges scores and we go to Chicago or as we've seen in a lot of clips, you know, in tribute to uh, to him lately, in a season that has been improbable, the impossible has just happened, right? I mean, who says that? Who's able to say, come up with that stuff on the spot? Just right. the best. Just fantastic. The best. And I'm going to tell you, uh, I told a version of the story to Bremer. I'll tell a more blunt version uh, with you guys uh, since we're deep into the show and we're very casual here. And th- this, this, I shouldn't tell the story, but I can't help myself because I'm a big jerk. Uh, so Mark Wicker, longtime Los Angeles area columnist, loves baseball, knew Vin very well. They talked all the time. They're standing, I don't know, by the cage or by the booth, whatever, one day. And Larry King comes up. And, of course, the thing about Vin, Roy, as you know, is Los Angeles is a celebrity city. And all the celebrities thought Vin Scully was the biggest celebrity in Los Angeles. They all wanted a piece of him. Uh, he was yep. there. He was the guy they all wanted to identify with, get to talk to, pretend they knew. So uh, Mark and Vin are talking. Larry King comes bustling up to to Vin Scully and just throws eight thousand words at him, and not 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 on all all non non sequiturs, no, you know, non sequential. Just you know, I'm Larry King. I'm going to say everything on top of my head, like just like my newspaper column, which used to make absolutely no sense. So just Larry King's just barraging him with silliness and just going on and on and on. Larry slaps Vin on the back and walks off. And Vin turns to uh, Mark and I can't do Vin Scully's voice, but I can do the cadence a little bit. And he goes, what an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You know, if it, Vin Scully that... said you were an asshole, you were, I think you're probably an asshole. Were, <laughs> maybe top 10 assholes in the world. Yeah, I think that's that, uh, yes. unbelievable. <laughs> I'm probably not supposed to tell that story, but it just it just cracks me up. That's a great <sighs> one. That's the worst thing I've ever heard Vin say. <laughs> I know, I know. Think how that's just like Roy said. If Vin called you an asshole, what must you really be like? Oh my god. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, one more twins thought from each of you. Then we're gonna do our music minute, and then we'll get out of here. Thank you again for listening to TalkNorth.com. Again. Uh, uh, thanks for producer Brandon Morton. Thank you to Corona, the official import beer sponsor of the Minnesota Twins and the presenting sponsor of the Chin Music Show here at TalkNorth.com. All right, so uh, let's start with Lavelle. Give me one one twin thought. Uh, my thought is they've, they've got to um, they've, they've got to hold serve here um, for the month of August. Uh, I predicted in my column la- uh, last week that they go 14 and 14 this month. So, I mean, losing two games to the Dodgers isn't, it kind of falls in line with what I was thinking. I just hated the manner in which it happened. You know, Joe Ryan putting pitches over the middle of the plate and Joey Gallo, God, making contact when he's so bad at making contact just irritates me. But, you know, they're in a stretch here. They still have Houston before this month is over and San Francisco. Um, the Red Sox finish out the month, but they're kind of fading a little bit. But they, they're running up against some quality squads here. So uh, if they just kind of hold serve and get through August – then they're going to be have to, they're going to be ready to have to be ready to fight for the division title in December. I mean, in September, because you got the White Sox. I think you have nine games with the White Sox and eight with Cleveland. And that's pretty much going to tell your season. And you also play the Royals six times. You also play Detroit a few times. 
And so you can handle those squads. The Angels are the, the schedule in September actually is really favorable for the Twins to finish strong here. Um, the only tester they have is when they go to New York for four games and play the Yankees from the, the fifth through the eighth. So the rest of that, that September schedule uh, is set up for the Twins to crush. So as long as they don't fall apart this month, um, they got a chance to wrap this. They'll have a good chance of wrapping things up in September. Yeah, I I, I think that's really true. I mean, holding serve in in those next thirty days, um, I, I think is um, is right on. And how are they going to do that? Um, I, I I've come to believe that what I believed at the very beginning of the season, I I felt like the Twins had just enough pitching to enable their offense to, you know, to win games. And I'm, I'm going back to that. Uh, I'm not going to expect more from the pitching staff than, than what it is. I, I, I think they've, based on what we thought the starting staff would, you know, was going to be like, it's not a whole lot different. If anything, it's, it's slightly better than we, than we thought it might be. Um, they've got, you know, two power arms now in the, in the back end. So and we we know the troubles in 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 between, so I'm just going to go back to the offense and say, you know what? Uh, I believe the Twins need to hit the way we thought they were going to hit. I thought they were going to be a big offensive club. They haven't been uh, as consistently strong offensively as uh, this last uh, couple months as as I thought they would. And to Lavelle's point earlier about the guys picking it up. I mean. It, it, I, I think if the Twins are going to hold serve and then they're going to have a good last month of the season and a favorable schedule, they're going to have to start clubbing the ball around. And uh, that's just who the personality is. There's always has been. And uh, when I say always, I mean the last, you know, four or five years. And they've done the best they can uh, with what they had to piece a pitching staff together. But I, I just think the guys have to hit and that's who they are. My two quick last thoughts. Uh, I, I do think it'll probably come down to, you know, head to head with Cleveland and Chicago in September. But there is an encouraging development here. The next ten games are against the Angels, Royals, and Rangers, seven of which are at home. This is a nice soft spot of the schedule. If they can play well, they could win seven out of ten, maybe eight out of ten, and get right back in first place. So that's that's my scheduling note. The other thing is, and I want to talk about him more in depth next week. We need to talk about Nick Gordon. It's a really cool thing that a you know a former number one pick who couldn't stay healthy had you know couldn't keep and keep weight on his bones is now jolting the ball. Uh, it's a nice unexpected development for a, a really you know a, a really fun guy to watch and a guy who just couldn't you know get there physically before. So next week let's plan on talking about Nick Gordon. Now Absolutely. our music our music minute uh, and and by the way you guys don't have to come up with something every week. Uh, we don't have to force it. Even if one or two of us have something to say musically, we can do that. But does anybody have a music uh, minute moment for us? Um, I have a minute to complain. Can I complain about music for a second? Yes, well, you may. Certain people. Um, I am crushed. Okay, absolutely crushed. One of my favorite uh, guitarists is Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Um, I think "Born with a Broken Heart" is an outstanding jam. And uh, he recently, I think he, uh, I was just checking out his tour dates. Uh, he's doing a 25th anniversary tour. And he is not coming anywhere close to Minnesota. I am sad about this. I, 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 I may have to go see him like somewhere in like Reno, Nevada or Grand Junction, Colorado, 
or Knoxville, Tennessee to get my Kenny Wayne Shepherd fix. But he's on tour, like starting now going into 2023. I think the closest he gets to Minnesota, maybe Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I'm, oh, Grand Rapids. Yep. Oh, Gary, Indiana. He's playing in Gary. Why is he playing in Gary? March 17th, he's in Gary, Indiana. Lavelle Neal may be there for the Kenny Wayne Shepherd concert because I think he's a, a masterful, masterful guitarist and uh, plays some great tunes. Hey, you can go, to, you and Latroy can go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Latroy can show me his childhood home and where he played one on one with Glenn Robinson. There you go. All right, Roy. Well, I'm just going to go with the Kenny Wayne Shepherd uh, topic uh, here, Lavelle. I don't know if you've heard the you know the rides, the band that um, that Stephen Stills and Kenny Wayne Shepherd put together. Uh, yes. But I'm going to I'm going to suggest to you, and um, I, I think I and to our uh, to our listeners, I probably talked about this two or three years ago on this on this program. But there is a song by the Rides. Um, th- that is uh, the Gladys Knight and um, and um, heard, you know, I heard it through the grapevine, Marvin uh-huh. Gaye, Gladys Knight, great tune. So uh, I'm pretty sure there are the organist, uh, the organ player Bernard Goldberg. I, I'm pretty sure he actually wrote the song, and um, they do this version. And Kenny Wayne Shepherd is on fire in the song. It's just so cool to hear, you know, uh, first of all, uh, Stephen Stills want to play the blues and, he, and, and play it with Kenny Wayne Shepherd and Kenny Wayne Shepherd playing this. And it's not, it's not really the, the, the blues as much as it is, um, you know, these two guys playing R and B in, um, in kind of blues guitar fashion. And there's a great, uh, organ riff by Bernard Goldberg. I mean, there's three really, actually four really great solos. Kenny Wynn Shepherd starts it off. Goldberg plays this funky, this cool uh, organ riff. Uh, Stills comes in, and then uh, Kenny Wynn Shepherd finishes it off and just blows it out of the water. So, uh, if you haven't heard that, you know, go find go find that and listen to that. It's one of my favorite songs. I listen to it all the time. Like it, like it. So uh, you've been talking about Joe Bonamassa. He's one of the ultimate – he's not only a great guitarist, he's a great guitar geek. He buys vintage stuff all the time. He has his uh, amps hand-built. So if anybody's interested in the geeky side of guitars, guitar playing, amp building, there's a guy named Alexander Dumble who Jackson Brown stumbled across in the 70s, and he was taking old Fender amps and rebuilding them uh, so they sounded like basically super amps. Guitar players are so particular, so picky, so crazed, and not all, but many, uh, including Stevie Ray Vaughan, Joe Bonamassa, Joe, John Mayer, Eric Johnson, people of that ilk, that this guy ended up building a limited number of amps. He, he's almost like an art dealer. Uh, he's, he can sell his amps for hundreds of thousands of dollars. They resell wow used for hundreds of thousands of dollars just because he found like that sweet spot and he builds different kinds of amps for different people who built and 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 he's he's like cantankerous he will like if you want like if i wanted him to build me an amp he'd do it but i'd have to give him like a fifty thousand dollar down payment and then i have to promise not to bother him that, that's <laughs> That's what, uh, and, and you can find, hey, you can find guitars that are, you know, cost $10,000. You can find old 
Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix guitars that might go for, I, I think, uh, uh, Jim Irsay, the, uh, the Colts owner, I think he bought one of David Gilmore's old guitars, for like a million dollars. So it, it's, wow. it's fascinating. You can go down a rabbit hole of guitar geek equipment that includes Alexander Dumble and million dollar guitars. And to me, it's all crazy because you know what? Jimi Hendrix played an off the rack Fender American standard Stratocaster. It's like, but, but once mythology becomes attached to this equipment, it, the geeks will pay almost anything for it. Right. Right. It's awesome. Good stuff, gentlemen. Thank you. We'll talk about Nick Gordon and other twins developments next week. Thanks again to our producer, Brandon Morton. And thank you for listening to talk North.com.